turn once again this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We've been working our way through this Gospel over these past uh, year or so, and we will continue to do so. I did want to touch upon this particular text, since it is a unique verse in the midst of a longer narrative that Christ gives us. Uh, Then for Christmas, uh, for the Christmas season in December, I'm going to be preaching from the first chapter of the Gospel of John for a little while, talking about Christ as our true Christmas light. And uh, then we will come back to our exposition of the Gospel of Luke in the new year. But I did want to touch upon this particular text this morning. Our focus is just one verse today, and that is Luke chapter 16, verse 18. And I'm going to go ahead for context. I'm going to start reading in verse 14. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray together and ask the Lord to guide our hearts. Father, we are so grateful to come here this morning. Having had time with family and loved ones, Having remembered, Lord, all the blessings which we have been given by you, our Father of light. So we come now to this Sabbath day, Lord, this Lord's Day. We are grateful for this opportunity to gather with the family of faith, to be together with the people of God, to be under the ministry of your word. Illumine now, Lord, our minds and hearts. Give us understanding. Show us Christ. Even as we face a text like this, as we hear this from the lips of our Lord, let us understand the role of marriage in the glory of Your name. We thank You and praise You that You are a God who speaks. Guide us now in Your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, right now before Congress, there's a piece of legislation called the Respect of Marriage Act. And from a biblical perspective, it is anything but respectful of marriage as God defines it. It will enshrine into law, if it is passed, the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell versus Hodges, which allowed same-sex marriage. And so we need to pray for our legislators and for our nation as a whole, especially that God would bring spiritual awakening and revival. Because this is yet another large evidence of our rapid moral decline and our culture's complete rejection of God's design for human sexuality. But it's not that subject that I want to address this morning. I, I do want to draw a parallel, however. In a very real sense, this verse, Luke 16, verse 18, that we come to this morning, is God's own Respect for Marriage Act. 
Because here we have Jesus correcting one of the great sins against marriage that existed in his own day. And it is a sin that continues even here in our time. And that is the sin of casual divorce. Now this morning will not be the first time I've preached on the issue of divorce, but it is the first time in several years because the text has brought us here. Sadly, it is a subject that I know very well because my parents divorced when I was six years old and I was literally their rope in a precarious and sometimes vicious game of tug of war that went on all the way until I graduated high school. I am fully aware that we have many people here who have been through or been affected by the incredible pain of divorce. There are beloved Christian brothers and sisters right here in our midst who have suffered abuse, who have suffered heartache, and even abandonment as divorced persons or as children of divorce. And yet the text brings us to this subject for a reason. Because there's an ethic here that we as a church and we as a Christian family want to build. Even when we talk about those who among us are single. Again, sometimes when you're single at this point in your life, it's, it's hard to hear a marriage that deals with, with uh, marriage or divorce, these kind of things. Especially if you're someone who's desiring for the gift of marriage. I want you to understand that all of God's word has value for all of us. Even a sermon on marriage for those who are not married or may never be married again. Because in all these things, Christ is meant to be glorified by his people. And whether we are single or whether we are married, we all have that in common with one another. We desire the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ through all our human relationships. Now this is going to be a heavy message. For those who've experienced the hardship of divorce, what the scripture has to say on the subject can be challenging. Some of you realize mistakes that you have made in past relationships. I know that there are some here who have been through divorce and are now remarried. You may hear some things, some challenging truths this morning that cause you to reflect on, on your own past. There may be others additionally who have never been through divorce, but maybe you have threatened it. Maybe you've gotten to such a dire place in your marriage that you now whip out this word against one another. Or maybe you simply think in your own mind that it is a possibility if things begin to go very wrong in your marriage. Whatever your history or mindset, there's three things we need to understand at the outset. First of all, God's word is God's word. And if we are God's people, our heart is always to be faithful to God's inerrant, inspired word. Our text is one of the many texts that states very plainly that unbiblical divorce and remarriage is a sin. And God's word is either the authority over all of our life, or it's not really our authority at all. So let's listen with hearts that are malleable to God's truth. Secondly, past mistakes cannot be unmade. Your personal history cannot be undone. There may be sin in your past, in marriage, or in regards to divorce. But by God's design, this is now part of God's purpose for your life. Remember Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The good news this morning is even that all of us here have made some past mistakes in some way, shape, or form 
We are blood-bought, forgiven, cleansed children of the Most High God. And if you are forgiven, it is not God's will for you to walk in guilt or shame. You rest and trust in Him. Take this truth today, looking forward, striving to live the biblical ethic. Thirdly, this is most important, may we all depend more preeminently upon Christ. Christ offers us infinitely more than what this world has to offer. Marriage is His gift. He can heal the shattered heart. He can reconcile two persons that are so totally at odds that they themselves think they could never survive in the relationship. He can remove all pain and fear and guilt. Why? Because Christ forgives. Christ reconciles and restores. Christ gives strength for you to be the man or the woman that He desires for you to be so you can look to and draw from Him. You cannot change yourself, but Christ can change you. And Christ can change your spouse. And so live for Him, love His gospel. I want to look at this verse this morning really just in two parts. And we want to consider first the error of human teaching. The error of human teaching. You know, as we come to this verse in Luke, it seems like Jesus just comes out of nowhere with this verse, right? He was just chiding the religious leaders for being lovers of money. And the first question we have is, what in the world has that got to do with marriage and divorce? Well, if you look at the verse right before our verse, Jesus had just told the religious leaders that not even one dot of the law would ever pass away. So what he does next was Jesus gives them a specific example of one of the laws that they continually broke. You see, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they, they claimed to be keepers of the law. But they, any one of them would divorce their wife at the drop of a hat. And so that's why Jesus brings up this specific instance. He mentions and brings about the specific law and applies it for them to convict their hearts that they may see where they have violated God's law and continually fall short. Now, to rightly understand, we, we do want to go back and, and grasp the Jewish perspective of divorce. There's only really one text in the Old Testament that provides directives on the issue of divorce. And that's in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. In Deuteronomy 24, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, as we think about that text in Deuteronomy 24, this text does not explicitly approve divorce. But from this single text, the Jews taught that divorce and remarriage was not only divinely permissible, it was even recommended in God's sight. Husbands could divorce their wives, and, and this is one of the places where ancient law favored men and led to the abuse of women, 
because husbands could divorce their wives, but wives could not divorce their husbands. But if they were divorced, both could remarry. And for a woman to survive, she almost had to remarry in this ancient culture. And that is the reason for the certificate of divorce. It protected her from slander and provided proof of her legal freedom from her husband and thus her right to remarry. Also, if a divorced woman had been married to another man and that man died or divorced her, she could not go back to the first husband because that first marriage covenant had effectively been defiled by the woman uniting with another man. So the only debate among Jews was in how to interpret the word indecency that's used there in Deuteronomy 24.1. There were two different schools of thought. First, the school of Rabbi Shammai interpreted the word indecency to refer only to sexual sins that were authenticated by witnesses. But then there was a second school, the school of Rabbi Hillel. They interpreted the word indecency to refer to really any basis for complaint. If your wife displeased you in any way, if she burned your dinner or disrespected you even in her appearance, you could divorce her. Well, as you might guess, most Jews preferred the interpretation of Rabbi Hillel. So in regards to the subject of divorce, the Jewish people had been erroneously taught that all a man had to do to lawfully divorce his wife was to have some reason, she burned my dinner, and then provide her with a certificate of divorce and send her out of the home. So you can imagine how marriage and women in these marriages were, were deeply abused by the system of thought. This was a gross misinterpretation of the law. You see, God was not giving his approval of divorce in Deuteronomy 24. He was providing directives on how to deal with the aftermath of the sin of divorce. His goal was to show the sacredness and permanence of the marriage covenant. This verse is the only verse in Luke's gospel that addresses divorce. But Jesus answered the same question from the religious leaders directly later on in the book of Matthew. In Matthew, we see the Pharisees had come to Jesus and asked him if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. And Jesus told them, no, that marriage was meant to be a permanent institution. You pick up in Matthew 19, verse 7. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give it a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Thus, brothers and sisters, we must understand that divorce is never to be thought of as God-ordained or even as a morally neutral option. Divorce exists because we as human beings are capable of incredible selfishness and debauchery. Divorce is evidence of our exceeding sinfulness. It is evidence of our hardness of heart. It, it exists only as a concession under the most extreme circumstances to keep greater sins against God from being perpetrated. What this means is that God does not look upon the issue of divorce and say, oh, that, that's, that's just such a shame that you two can't work it out. God doesn't say, oh, please try one more time to make things work. God doesn't say, well, I, I guess you have to be true to your own heart and pursue your own happiness. And God does not say, 
oh, I, I just really wish you wouldn't end this marriage. God says in Malachi 2, verse 16, I hate divorce. That is why a biblical view of marriage is foundational to a biblical perspective of divorce. You see, according to God, marriage is designed to be a permanent covenant relationship instituted and ordained by Him. God created marriage to display His glory in a way that no other human relationship or institution does. God personally created the first bride and gave her away in marriage. He spoke the design of marriage into existence when he said we should leave your father and mother, cleave to your wife, and become one flesh. And God himself is the one who joins the husband and wife into this one flesh union. So marriage ultimately exists for God's glory. He's the one who created it. It's a covenant relationship between one man and one woman that reflects and displays to the world the covenant relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Sex or the physical union of flesh within the bounds of marriage ultimately exists as a picture of how deeply we are to know God and how intensely we are to be bound to him as our bridegroom. Everything about God's design in the marriage relationship is meant to point to him. It's about him, not me, not you, but about him. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And as Paul said in Ephesians 5, which Pastor Billy read for us, that very reality of a one flesh relationship is by God's design to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. Brothers and sisters, this is where we want to just get very practical here for a minute. Anyone in this room who is married will agree with this statement. Marriage is hard. It can be happy and it can be glorious, but it's also hard. Living a life faithful to Christ is also hard. But ultimately, we are married for the sake of Christ. And our relationship with Him is everything we need. You think about this, so often we get into marriage difficulty and we look elsewhere to have our needs met and we think we're justified because somehow we're not receiving the love or attention that we deserve at home. Brothers and sisters, this is a fundamental failure to depend upon Christ or to expect something from your spouse that they can never ultimately and fully give you. Everything you need is in Jesus. You see, Christ is always loving and joyous and faithful. Christ is patient and selfless and generous. Christ will never be harsh with you or manipulative of you or forsake you. He will never be unfaithful to you. Christ will never withdraw from those He loves he will never lie to you. He will never fail you. He will never, ever be anything but true and truthful to you. 
He will always meet your needs according to His riches in glory. And when you fail, when you are selfish, when you cling to the idols of your own making and adulterate yourself, Christ will not pull away. Christ will sacrifice Himself to restore you, to strengthen you, and to sanctify you in Himself. That's the wonder and love and beauty of our Savior, brothers and sisters. He is one who redeems us. And not only does He redeem us, He even redeems our hurts, our harms, our circumstances. He redeems it all for His glory. That, that is a beauty that points us even to salvation. There is nothing that you have done that our Christ cannot forgive if you but turn from your sin and trust in Him as your Savior and Lord. That is the wonder and grace of our Savior. And believe it or not, through the trials and difficulties of marriage, He is sanctifying you to learn to love in that very same way that He loves. You see, because Christ lives with an adulterous bride every day, and yet He forgives and loves and restores. That is the wonder of the grace of our Savior. And He can build in us and through us an ethic of marriage that is never casual, never driven by selfishness, one that is marked by love and contentment. Why? Because we are looking beyond our spouses to Him, to Christ who is our all in all. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. He is your salvation from sin. And He is your salvation from selfishness. That takes us to the verse itself then, understanding that background. My second point, let's consider the exacting standard of God. So let's look specifically at what Jesus says here in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. In this verse, Jesus solidifies the ramifications for those who do pursue a sinful divorce. He says here that when a man divorces his wife for illegitimate reasons, he makes her commit adultery. Now, what does he mean by that? Remember what I noted earlier, that in Jewish culture at this time, a woman almost had to be married to be able to survive. Women did not have the same property and labor rights as men, and so they were dependent upon men. So it was assumed that a woman who was widowed or divorced would remarry as soon as possible. That's why the certificate of divorce was so important for the woman, so that she could remarry quickly. So here's what Jesus meant. By illegitimately divorcing his wife and thus putting her in financial, in the, into a financial and social situation where she was virtually forced into a second marriage, the man was effectively making her become one flesh with another man. He was effectively making her commit adultery against the first marriage covenant. And this is that aspect of the abusiveness of casual divorce. Likewise, the second husband, who is not a legitimate husband according to the Bible, is also committing adultery because the woman's divorce was biblically unlawful. In biblically terms, he is sleeping with a woman who is still another man's wife, and thus he has become an adulterer as well. The bottom line is that a man or woman who has no biblical right to divorce 
also has no biblical right to remarry. God's plan for marriage is one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for a lifetime. That's what we just read in, in our own statement of faith, the second London. God's plan for marriage is that. According to God's design, there is only one person of the opposite sex in your lifetime that you are meant to see uncovered and that you are meant to be with physically. Any thought or view or act outside of that divine design is sexually explicit sin and spiritual adultery. Our minds, eyes, and bodies are meant for only one other person, just like our hearts, minds, and bodies are meant for the only and true God. And marriage is intended to be for a lifetime because marriage ultimately points to our union with God. Now at this point, you're all asking, but Sean, aren't there exceptions that we are given that allow for remarriage and that allow for divorce? Well, yes, there are. Because there is horrific sin and because of our hardness of heart, there are biblical allowances. And so let's talk about those. First of all, if your spouse dies... The Bible says you are free to remarry. The exclusiveness of the marriage covenant is ended when your covenant partner dies. And so the Bible says that you are free to marry again as long as the other person is of the same faith. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Secondly, if your spouse sins against you by being sexually involved with another person, divorce and remarriage is also allowed. That is the meaning of the exception clause that we see in the parallel passage in Matthew 5.32, where Jesus quotes the same verse in Luke, but he adds, except for the cause of unchastity. That appears again in Matthew 19.9. Again, the word for unchastity is the word pornea. It is where we get the word pornography. And this is a more general term for sexual sin that includes fornication prior to the one flesh union of the husband and wife, as well as actual adultery once the marriage has been consummated. Jesus uses this term to distinguish actual sexual behavior from mere adulterous thoughts, which he has just been discussing. In other words, he uses this term to make sure that we understand that we cannot divorce our spouse merely because they have lusted or committed adultery in the heart. It is when they have engaged in pornea or actual illicit sexual behavior that, the, that this exception clause takes effect. We want to also note here, though, that this exception clause allows for divorce. It does not require it. It is a concession, not a command. Marriage can survive and even flourish after adultery or sexual sin. God can do such an incredible work of grace and forgiveness in his people's hearts that we can scarcely imagine how we can take our pain and our hurt and turn it into delight and love, but he can, and he does. Think about the biblical story of Hosea and Gomer, about how Christ loves us still, even after our spiritual adulteries. God's will is reconciliation, and so we should pursue that even in the aftermath of adultery. Divorce is allowed but it's never biblically recommended. Thirdly, if you have an unbelieving spouse who breaks covenant or wants out of the marriage, then the divorce is allowed, but again, not recommended. This is what Paul gives us in, second, or excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 15. 
Verse 15, concluding that, says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So those two cases of a, of a believer either committing physical adultery or someone committing physical adultery or someone breaking covenant, those are the only two reasons, biblically, that a believer may pursue divorce. And I do want us to be clear about another dynamic those verses set before us. Without a doubt, if you do choose to divorce someone for unbiblical reasons, you are to remain single and celibate for the rest of your life or to be reconciled to that spouse. This gets back to the idea that God's ideal is one marriage partner, one sexual relationship for a lifetime. Married persons are joined together by God in a covenant relationship, and that relationship is meant to be an indissoluble union. Now again, what I've just said, what I've brought to you from God's Word, is raising more questions in your minds and hearts, right? You're asking some pretty serious questions. Pastor Sean, what about two people that, can't, that, that just can't get along, that are fighting all the time? Well, God's Word says to you, repent. Repent and get some help. Your lack of love for one another is a result of sinful selfishness. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Fight for your marriage. Fight for the glory of Christ in your marriage by getting the help that you need. Don't just settle into divorce because it's hard to get along. Guess what? We're all sinners. It's hard for all of us to get along perfectly. And especially when you take two sinners and you put them in the same home together 24-7, it's going to be some fireworks there. Seek the Lord and trust Him and get the help you need. Secondly, what about someone who's being abused, Pastor Sean? Well, the very first thing I would say is absolutely separate. God does not desire for you or your children to be somebody else's punching bag. In the separation, if the sinful spouse wants to remain married, they will truly repent and submit to getting spiritual help and godly counseling for their problem. Also, make this issue known to the church. Your church family is here to support you and encourage you and protect you if you are in that relationship where you are being abused. By God's grace, a healthy marriage can eventually be reassumed. If that person, if that abuser will not repent and get help, or if the abuse continues even after they supposedly repent, then they have proved themselves to be an unbelieving spouse with an active disdain for the covenant of marriage and divorce is biblical. What about a spouse who falls into great wickedness like adultery or substance abuse? Again, protect yourself and your children and seek godly counsel to get help for that person. We are to, to love and reach out to them and forgive them. If they desire to remain married, then everything possible should be done to protect that marital union. However, if that person stubbornly and unrepentantly continues down a path of self-destruction, they have proved themselves to be an unbeliever. And in many cases, that person will often end up abandoning their spouse and family because that is the behavior of unbelief. And that divorce for the innocent in that is a biblical divorce. Fourthly, and this is another question that comes about, what about persons who have been through unbiblical divorces? 
Well, first, repent of that sin and trust and know that God cleanses and forgives us in Christ. If you are still single, God's desire is that you be reconciled to that spouse or remain celibate. If you have remarried or if they have remarried, those marriage covenants must be honored. Forcing another unbiblical divorce is not God's will. However, for the sake of Christ's name, you may need to confess your sin and seek forgiveness from that person or from your children or from others who were deeply affected by that unbiblical divorce. Once again, brothers and sisters, divorce is never God's desire, but it is a biblical concession because of our sinfulness. And the beautiful truth of, of, that I've, I've talked about before that I bring us back to again is that God is a God who specializes in bringing beauty out of our ashes. We may have made hard or bad or sinful decisions as younger persons, and yet God has worked through those to shape us, to conform us to Christ, to bring us into subsequent marriages where by God's grace we have brought glory and honor to Him in years and decades of faithfulness and service to that other person that God has blessed our lives with. Praise Him. Walk in His forgiveness, not in shame or guilt. But understand, if you're in a person now who's, who's in a difficult marriage, divorce, even in cases where there is biblical warrant, should only be undertaken with great prayer and fear and reverence for God's design in the marriage covenant. My desire for our church is that we would be a church that pursues and enforces the biblical ethic of marriage while also at the same time protecting and defending the innocent victims of adultery and abuse. Divorce is not just a family problem. It is not just a relational problem. It is a faith problem and therefore it is also a church and the vast majority of divorces among the people of God could be stopped if we would only abandon our pride and get help and counseling when we need it. And this is just where I want to be, give you a very personal exhortation, brothers and sisters. In, in, in a couple decades now of pastoral counseling, it's, I'm always astonished to find out that there are couples that we've known and fellowshiped and loved that we never knew were having problems but behind the scenes, they were struggling and they just didn't want to get help and they were closed off to others and they would never let others look into their lives. And then it comes to a point where something erupts and we find out that all this has been going on all this time behind the scenes. Do not let your pride keep you from getting biblical help and biblical counsel early on. Don't let things continue to deteriorate just somehow thinking they are going to right themselves. We all need biblical help. Hear your pastor say from the pulpit, there are times that Lisa and I have had to go to others for counsel and help in a time of need. We all have those times of need. Final thing I would say too is that you should train your children with this biblical ethic. Again, if we follow a worldly ethic, you know, a worldly ethic says, you know, you turn into a teenager and you start going out with people and you start dating and all these different types of things. And, and I don't really want to get into a discussion of dating versus courtship and that whole mess. All I'm going to say is, I hope you would raise your children with a godly ethic of relationships. Help them to understand 
that another Christian, first and foremost, is the only appropriate candidate for marriage. That we must be equally yoked. And that marriage is something to be taken very, very, very seriously and very sacredly and not entered into lightly. Teach and train them in that biblical ethic so that they know, so that they understand, and so that by God's grace, they may walk in faithfulness one day when God blesses them with a godly spouse. I want to finish by taking us to Ezekiel chapter 16. I just want to read these verses of Scripture and to bring us back to this reality that marriage ultimately, by God's design, is to reflect the relationship between our Lord and His people. Right? That's what Paul reveals to us in Ephesians 5, again, which we heard earlier in the service, that marriage is ultimately about the relationship between Christ and His church. But listen how even the Old Testament speaks of this. You know, Ezekiel chapter 16 is a challenging chapter. It's not a flattering chapter because it begins and ends with with some very sour notes because of Israel's idolatry. But listen to these middle verses beginning in Ezekiel 16 verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at an age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. You see how God speaks of his people Israel? And how he had wed himself to them as his people. And how that relationship was meant to be for his glory and their good among all the nations of the earth. That's God's design for us in human marriage. If you read on in the chapter, you see that Israel broke covenant with the God who wed himself to them. They went after the idols of the other nations. They even came to a place where they were sacrificing their children to false gods. And because of that, God's wrath came upon them. But brothers and sisters, let's not lose sight of the beauty of what we have been given. Let us remember that the covenant relationship between a man and a woman by God's design is to be a commitment made for a lifetime. Where the husband dies to himself. He sacrifices himself for the good of the bride. That's what loving husbands do. They lay down their lives daily to love their wives sacrificially. And thus they engender the love and respect and submission of their wives. Because they together are embodying the relationship between Christ and his church. May we rest in and trust in this Christ who redeems us. Amen.